0: One of the bright spots in the history of lesbian desire in history and literature is the ancient Greek poet Sappho. When you think about the erasure of women from history, and the even greater erasure of queer sexuality, it's so amazing that we have an icon like Sappho whose presence and genius were so powerful that they could only be dimmed and distorted and not entirely erased. I like to try to do some sort of special feature in the Lesbian Historic Motif Project to celebrate Pride Month. This time, I've been covering several books about Sappho from my to-do list and have bracketed the month with two special podcasts. The first one was about the historic Sappho and the beginnings of the myths that ancient Greek and Roman writers created about her. This time, we'll look at the legacy of Sappho from the Middle Ages up through the 19th century, the various images people had of her, how people used her as a symbol, and the way those images affected how her poetry was translated into everyday languages and how poets used her themes and imagery in their own work. Sappho lived in the 7th century BC, and it's a testament to her reputation among other classical writers that we know anything about her at all. Early references to her works indicate that her poetry was collected into eight volumes, representing perhaps 10,000 lines of verse, of which 650 lines survive. That's a small fraction even considering that new fragments of her poetry are still being discovered today. One of the largest modern discoveries was on scraps of papyrus excavated from a rubbish dump in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, at the end of the 19th century. But for much of history before that, the only way that Sappho's poems survived was when they were quoted by other authors. Sometimes only a few words or a line, used to illustrate some point of poetics or grammar, or simply to gain the cachet of quoting the renowned poet. When literature was disseminated only by laboriously writing each copy out by hand, to cease to be recopied was to be forgotten. And sometime around the 6th or 7th century AD, the full collections of Sappho's work stopped being of interest to copyists, and thus never made the transition from papyrus scrolls to parchment books, except secondhand when quoted by others. Only one complete poem survives, her ode to the goddess Aphrodite, where she begs Aphrodite to help her win the love of a woman who spurns her. But another nearly complete song known as fragment 31 is the one that most caught the imagination of translators and imitators the following translations are from jane mcintosh schneider's book lesbian desire in the lyrics of sappho which is covered in the lesbian historic motif project blog they are literal renderings of the original meaning rather than being works of poetry in themselves they will serve as a foundation for the other versions that i'll be presenting here in fragment number one known as the ode to aphrodite Sappho names herself as the speaker, and begs the goddess Aphrodite for aid in her romantic disappointment. O immortal Aphrodite of the many coloured throne, child of Zeus, weaver of wiles, I beseech you, do not overwhelm me in my heart with anguish and pain. O mistress, but come hither, if ever, at another time, hearing my cries from afar, you heeded them. And leaving the home of your father came, yoking your golden chariot. Beautiful, swift sparrows drew you above the black earth, whirling their wings thick and fast from heaven's ether through the mid air. Suddenly they had arrived, but you, O blessed lady, with a smile on your immortal face, asked what I had suffered again, and why I was calling again, and what I was most wanting to happen for me in my frenzied heart. Whom again shall I persuade to come back into friendship with you, who o sappho does you injustice for if indeed she flees soon will she pursue and though she receives not your gifts she will give them and if she loves not now soon she will love even against her will come to me now also release me from harsh cares accomplish as many things as my heart desires to accomplish and you yourself be my fellow soldier the second poem fragment 31 is incomplete at the end but enough survives that it has been a favorite for translation and imitation, expressing the physical experience of desire and jealousy. He seems to me to be like the gods, whatever man sits opposite you, and close by hears you talking sweetly, and laughing charmingly, which makes the heart within my breast take flight. For the instant I look upon you, I cannot any more speak one word, but in silence, my tongue is broken. A fine fire at once runs under my skin, with my eyes I see not one thing, my ears buzz. Cold sweat covers me, trembling seizes my whole body, I am more moist than grass. I seem to be little short of dying, but all must be ventured. To understand the context of how Sappho's poetry was understood and translated, we need to have a sense of how Sappho herself was viewed in later ages. Classical writers like Ovid and some medieval writers held up Sappho as a model of education and erudition. Giovanni Boccaccio, who is most famous for his Decameron, wrote a celebration of famous and some infamous women that included her. And Christine de Pisan includes Sappho among the intellectual women praised in her work The City of Ladies. In parallel with her reputation as a poet, Sappho was also associated with sex between women, whether as an example of a woman with lesbian desires, or to refute that accusation. The Italian writer Bartolomeo della Rocca, writing around 1500, uses Sappho as an example of, quote, morally offensive lust, unquote, between women. In the mid-16th century, Italian writer Agnolo Firanzuola, when writing of the love that women could have for each other, said... Some love each other's beauty, impurity, and holiness, as the elegant Laudomia fotiguera loves the most illustrious Margaret of Austria. Some lasciviously, as in ancient times Sappho from Lesbos, and in our own times in Rome, the great prostitute Cecilia Venetiana. This type of woman by nature spurns marriage and flees from intimate conversation with men. Around the same date, the Swiss encyclopedist Theodore Zwinger included a list of Sappho's female lovers in his entry for Tribbids. The French aristocratic gossipmonger Brantome, writing around 1600, was more interested in Sappho as an early proponent of what he called donna con dona, woman with woman, than as a poet. Citing Roman authors, he notes, it is said that Sappho of Lesbos was a very good mistress in this art, that is, woman with woman. Indeed, they say she invented it, and that the ladies of Lesbos have imitated her in this since, and continued down to today. As Lucian says, such women are women of lesbos, who will not tolerate men but approach other women as men themselves do. During the 16th and 17th centuries, an increasing desire to distinguish acceptable forms of romantic attraction between women versus unacceptably physical forms led to a divergence between the images of Sappho as a romantic poet and Sappho as unnatural deviant. This conflict plays out repeatedly over the following centuries, with Sappho's admirers feeling they needed to desexualize her work and life, and her detractors using the example of her fabled sexuality to attack learned women of their own time as inherently deviant. Both sides used the classical poem Sappho de Feon, now associated with Ovid, but at the time considered to have been written by Sappho herself, as evidence either of her repudiating the love of women, or of the tragic fate of one who had previously dared to embrace it. Translations of this poem appeared somewhat earlier than those of Sappho's own poetry, as in Thomas Haywood's 1624 edition. Some responded to the conflict between the poetic and sexual Sapphos by inventing a second Sappho to whom the objectionable material could be attributed. Others dealt with the dilemma by interpreting her poems as being written from a fictional masculine point of view. Male poets sometimes used Sappho as an alter ego, expressing their own heterosexual desire for women through her voice. It is in this context that the renewed interest in Sappho's poetry, as opposed to her personal life, led to publication, translation, and imitation of her works. Sappho's poetry itself had previously only been accessible to those who could read the original Greek, as well as having access to the older manuscripts that included it. In the mid-16th century, her work began being collected up and published, either in the original Greek or with Latin translations. Perhaps the earliest of these is the 1556 publication by Henri Etienne, which includes poems 1 and 31. Following soon after were translations into everyday language. But even before vernacular translations appeared, poets were referencing Sappho's works and loves in their own poetry. English poet John Donne, in 1600, wrote an original poem in Sappho's voice entitled Sappho to Pholanus, which acknowledges her homoeroticism and treats it positively. French poet Anne de Rohan was clearly familiar with Sappho's homoerotic reputation, and in her 1617 poem, On a Lady Named Beloved, makes direct allusion to fragment 31 in a work that is clearly a love poem from one woman to another. She would have had access to Sappho's works via publications such as those mentioned. You can see the echoes of Sappho's themes in this English translation of de Rohan's poem, though it is not a direct counterpart to a specific poem. Beauty, it would be a great wrong if, for your worthy graces, I had been dealt the lover's fate for anyone but you, my dear beloved. All the Olympic torches illuminated in their course are not lovelier ornaments than the eyes of my beautiful beloved cupid delighted with those eyes his right hand armed with an arrow shot into my troubled heart that i ardent desire to love my beloved i know not whether they be heavens or gods whose power from me is hidden and compels me both near and far to die so as to love my beloved to see them they seem like the heavens of azure color are they but by their efforts they're like gods forcing me yet to love that beloved for me, then, they're both heavens and gods, because of their hidden power and luminous appearance, for I hold nothing dearer than my beloved. Anne Dacier's French edition of Sappho's work, published in 1681, was important for the spread of familiarity with Sappho's work throughout Europe. However, Dacier considered the homoerotic interpretation of Sappho to be slander. In her edition, Sappho's fragments are reinterpreted to create a virtual male figure around whom Sappho's life revolves. Slightly earlier than Dacier, in 1652, the English translator John Hall included a version to fragment 31 in his edition of the Classical Greek Poetic Manual that it is quoted in. Perhaps it is this context that inspired his choice of poetic meter. Unlike many translations, he retains the final surviving line that shows the incomplete nature of what we have. He that sits next to thee now and hears thy charming voice to me appears beauteous as any deity that rules the sky. How did his pleasing glances dart, sweet languors to my ravished heart, at the first sight, though so prevailed that my voice failed? I'm speechless, feverish, fires assail my fainting flesh, my sight doth fail, whilst to my restless mind my ears still hum new fears. Cold sweats and tremblings so invade that, like a withered flower, I fade, so that my life being almost lost, I seem a ghost. Yet since I'm wretched, must I dare, at which it breaks off. Seventeenth-century English poet Catherine Phillips was compared to Sappho by her friends, although the intention may have been simply to praise Phillips' poetry. The two bodies of work share the characteristic of using the structures and tropes of heterosexual love poetry in contexts where both the lover and beloved are unmistakably female. Alexander Pope, perhaps best known for his mock-heroic poem "The Rape of the Lock," turned his translating talents in 1712 not to Sappho's work itself, but to Ovid's poem "Sappho De Phaon." Unlike some other translations of this work, Pope's version includes the acknowledgement that Sappho did originally love women, a topic that others had simply glossed over in translating the poem, turning Sappho entirely heterosexual. The early 18th century English writer and politician Joseph Addison wrote a number of works inspired by classical authors. He wasn't as proficient in Greek as Anne Dacier had been with her French edition. In 1735, Addison translated a number of Sappho's works into rather forgettable rhymed couplets, including fragment 31, Happy as a God is He. The first person voice of the poem, combined with an absence of any specific reference to the person addressed, and the lack of grammatical gender markers in English, mean that little trace of homoerotic sentiment remains. Happy as a God is He, that fond youth who placed by thee hears and sees thee sweetly gay, talk and smile his soul away. That it was alarmed my breast, And deprived my heart of rest, For in speechless raptures tossed, While I gazed, my voice was lost. The soft fire, with flowing rain, Glided swift through every vein. Darkness o'er my eyelids hung, In my ears faint murmurs rung. Chilling damps my limbs bedewed. Gentle tremors thrilled my blood. Life from my pale cheeks retired. Breathless, I almost expired. Somewhat more poetic, if less faithful, versions were produced by Ambrose Phillips in 1748, including the hymn to Aphrodite, fragment number one, and fragment 31. In the first, Phillips had changed the gender of Sappho's beloved to male. O Venus, beauty of the skies, to whom a thousand temples rise, gaily false in gentle smiles, full of love perplexing wiles, O goddess, from my heart remove the wasting cares and pains of love if ever thou hast kindly heard a song in soft distress preferred propitious to my tuneful vow o gentle goddess hear me now descend thou bright immortal guest in all thy radiant charms confessed thou once didst leave almighty jove and all the golden roofs above the car thy wanton sparrows drew hovering in air they lightly flew as to my bower they winged their way i saw their quivering pinions play the birds dismissed, while you remain, Bore back their empty car again. Then you, with looks divinely mild, In every heavenly feature smiled, And asked what new complaints I made, And why I called you to my aid. What frenzy in my bosom raged, And by what cure to be assuaged? What gentle youth I would allure, Whom in my artful toils secure? Who does thy tender heart subdue? Tell me, my Sappho, tell me who? Though now he shuns thy longing arms, he soon shall court thy slighted charms. Though now thy offerings he despise, he soon to thee shall sacrifice. Though now he frees, he soon shall burn, and be thy victim in his turn. Celestial visitant once more, thy needful presence I implore. In pity come and ease my grief, bring my distempered soul relief. Favor thy suppliants' hidden fires, and give me all my heart desires. In Philip's translation of fragment 31, there is no need to make pronoun changes, but a subtle shift in the emphasis of the poem can make it appear that the speaker's lovesickness is caused by the man referenced in the first line. Alternately, the absence of an identification for the poem's speaker leaves one free to imagine it in the male translator's voice. Blessed as the immortal gods is he, the youth who fondly sits by thee, and hears and sees thee all the while, softly speak and sweetly smile. "'Twas this deprived my soul of rest "'and raised such tumults in my breast, "'for while I gazed in transport tossed, "'my breath was gone, my voice was lost. "'My bosom glowed, the subtle flame "'ran quick through all my vital frame, O'er my dim eyes a darkness hung, "'my ears with hollow murmurs rung. "'In dewy damps my limbs were chilled, "'my blood with gentle horrors thrilled, "'my feeble pulse forgot to play. "'I fainted, sunk, and died away.'" Despite the best efforts of these gender-swapped translations, knowledge about Sappho's work and reputation provided a conceptual community for women who loved women in the 18th century. The terms lesbian and sapphic were coming into common use in a sexual sense, and even superficially innocent references to the poet could be used as a sort of secret password to refer to lesbian desire. For intellectual and literary women of the time, there was a complication. In addition to her sexual reputations, Sappho stood in for the idea of intellectual and literary women in general. So it sometimes happened that female scholars, even more than male ones, found themselves straining to discount the taint of lesbianism for the most famous lesbian. Sappho's mere existence entered into the tension between several framings of same-sex passions. One position othered lesbianism by placing it elsewhere in space or time, in ancient Greece or in foreign countries. Another view saw lesbianism as a brand-new decadent phenomenon, a sort of kids-these-days approach. The classical Sappho could be used to imply lesbianism was something of the past, no longer practiced, and perhaps conceptually divorced from affections between 18th-century women. But those educated enough to have access to literature of the previous century, such as John Donne's Sappho de Filanus in 1633, or Brantome's Lives of the Gallant Ladies, would find it harder to dismiss lesbianism as a long-standing tradition. It was during this era that accusations of lesbianism became a regular part of social and political attacks on prominent women. Sappho was a useful symbol to use in such attacks that would carry a weight of symbolism with an economy of reference. An anonymous poet in 1735 wrote a long, mock heroic poem entitled The Sapphoen, satirically attributing to Sappho the origin of lesbianism in general, and certain sexual practices in particular. In the 19th century, the academic approach to Sappho's poetry might be summed up by the opinion of Henry Thornton Wharton, whose 1887 edition of Sappho's work attempted to produce a comprehensive bibliography of published editions starting in the mid-16th century, as well as materials relating to her life. Wharton discusses the passion and skill of Sappho's poetry, but almost entirely sidesteps the issue of her sexuality, even when citing works that address it. He concludes, quote, whether the pure think her emotion pure or impure, whether the impure appreciate it rightly or misinterpret it, whether, finally, it was platonic or not, seems to me to matter nothing, end quote. The translations he collects reflect this insistent sidestepping. Although Wharton's literal rendering of the Ode to Aphrodite is faithful to the gender of the original without comment, who wrongs thee, Sappho? For even if she flies, she soon shall follow. And if she loves not, shall soon love, however loath. Most of the metrical renderings he collects, however, all turn the diffident beloved to he. Wharton's version of fragment 31 is less problematic given that the original lacks the same overt reference to Sappho as the speaker and clear reference to the gender of the beloved. Thus the metrical versions by male poets that he collects can be received as the jealousy of one man, the poet, for another over the woman they both desire. Rather than a direct translation, Here's a borrowing of the imagery for another context by Lord Tennyson in 1832. I watch thy grace, and in its place my heart a charmed slumber keeps, while I muse upon thy face, and a languid fire creeps through my veins to all my frame, dissolving and slowly soon from thy rose-red lips my name floweth, and then as in a swoon with dinning sound my ears are rife, my tremulous tongue faltereth, I lose my color, I love my breath, I drink the cup of a costly death, brimmed with delicious draughts of warmest life, I die with my delight before I hear. Hear what I would hear from thee." In versions such as this, the male literary establishment claimed Sappho's poetic legacy for their own and for heterosexual love by appropriating Sappho's words and removing them from the context of her own desires. But while one 19th century movement straightwashed Sappho in order to claim her for Romanticism, Sappho's transgressive sexuality was enthusiastically embraced by the decadent movement that sprang up in France, who saw in her an icon of everything they considered most outrageous to bourgeois sensibilities, an aggressive and predatory female sexuality that led inevitably to madness and death. This movement evoked their version of the legendary Sappho in works like Charles Baudelaire's Lesbos in 1857 and Pierre-Louis' The Songs of Bilitis in 1894, a cycle of poems in the voice of a fictional member of Sappho's community. Rather than end on that note, I'd like to close with two works by the American poet Mary Hewitt. Her translation of Sappho's Fragment 31, published in 1845, fails somewhat in terms of poetic merit but seems to carry an intensity of emotion that many other translations lack blessed as the immortal gods is he on whom each day thy glances shine who hears thy voice of melody and meets thy smile so all divine O, when i list thy accents low how thrills my breast with tender pain fire seems through every vein to glow and strange confusion whelms my brain my sight grows dim beneath the glance, Whose ardent rays I may not meet, While swift and wild my pulses dance, Then cease all suddenly to beat. And o'er my cheek, with rapid gush, I feel the burning life tide dart, Then backward, like a torrent rush, All icy cold upon my heart. And I am motionless and pale, And silent as an unstrung lyre, And feel, while thus each sense doth fail, Doomed in thy presence to expire. Hewitt was also inspired to write original poetry in the style of Sappho. The following work echoes many of the themes in fragment 31, but rewoven into a new work. If anything, this poem carries a stronger sense of homoeroticism than the original, for instead of simply recording the speaker's physical reactions, it explicitly attributes those reactions to love. When I looked for further information on Hewitt, I wouldn't have been surprised to discover her among the literary, lifelong spinsters who formed the backbone of the romantic friendship phenomenon. Alas, Hewitt was twice married to men, so my fantasies were shattered. But then, so were many of the women of this time who wrote of their strong emotional bonds to other women. This poem suggests that, at the very least, she would have understood such desires. If to repeat thy name, when none may hear me, to find thy thought with all my thoughts inwove, to languish where thou art not, to sigh when near thee, O oh, if this be to love thee, I do love. If when thou utterest low words of greeting, to feel through every vein the torrent pour, then back again the hot tide swift retreating, leave me all powerless, silent as before if to list breathless to thine accents failing almost to pain upon my eager ear and fondly when alone to be recalling the words that i would die again to hear if at thy glance my heart all strength forsaking pant in my breast as pants the frighted doves if to think on thee ever sleeping waking oh if this be to love thee i do love